As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's somewhat comforting to know that as Mr. Bostic passed economics in Harvard, he also took a degree in psychology that's perhaps helpful at this moment. Very happy to say, sitting alongside Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning to you, John. You guys are really depressing today, so maybe we'll ask Raphael to uh, use his psychiatric degree to try to cheer you up or something. <laughs> Raphael Bostic, president of the Atlanta Fed, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, Wall Street also depressed, as you heard there with the uh, the numbers that they were just giving us. The, the, quest, the two questions that everybody on Wall Street wants to know is how far, how fast? Uh, and so let me start with that to get the good stuff out of the way here. Um, is 75 basis points really off the table? Is 50-50 and maybe another 50 going to be good enough? And then how high do you think you end up going? Well, first of all, good to see you, Mike. It's good to have you here at our conference. It's, it's always a great time to be together. You know, when I think about our policy, the first thing that is on my mind is that inflation is too high. And we need to act definitively and purposefully to, to try to get that under control. And I think if you look at what we've, what we've done so far in the last two meetings, we've really started that process. For me, 50, 50 basis points from over the last 20 years, you know is already a pretty aggressive move. I don't think we need to be, be moving even more aggressively. I think we can stay at this, at this uh, pace and this cadence and really see how the markets evolve. Uh, my expectation and hope really is that uh, as we move closer to our neutral uh, levels uh, and far away from our accommodative stance, uh, that we're going to start to see a lot of the, 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 the tightness and the tension in the economy start to moderate, which can then give us options and choices as to sort of what we do after that point. How far do you go? Where do you think you'll be by, say, the end of the year or by the end of 2023? Well, you know, that's a very good question. I really think we need to be getting somewhere into the neutral range. And, and as you know, um, different people have different ideas about what that looks like. For me, I'm looking somewhere between two and two and a half percent as our neutral range. Uh, and then, we, then let's just wait and see what's happening. Um, you know, in the, in the intro to this segment, a lot of discussions about 
uh, uncertainty, or the Seth Carpenter uh, ref was referenced, he's going to be here, I'm really excited about that, uh, saying that there's a, a lot of volatility, a lot of stuff that's going to play out. So once we get to that neutral level, I think that'll be fine. Um, we're going to, in my view, we're going to move a couple times, uh, maybe two, maybe three times, see what happens, see how the economy responds, uh, see if inflation continues to move closer to our 2% target. And then we, we can really take a pause, I think, and, and look at how things are going. Well, take a pause. What does that mean? Not move at a meeting, or would this be just a rolling decision as you go along? So for me, I think all options are on the table at every meeting. So depending on how the economy is responding, uh, it could be that the economy is responding strongly, so we don't need to do anything. It could be that the, the economy is, is responding uh, maybe a little less strong, so we might move to 25 basis points, or we may stay at 50. So I'm, I'm really going to keep my, my mind open. I'm going to observe what happens in the economy and then adapt my idea about what uh, appropriate uh, policy looks like uh, based on that knowledge. A lot of economists and many of your colleagues have said you're going to have to go beyond neutral uh, to restrictive. If you had a 4% inflation rate and a 3% Fed funds rate, you've still got a negative real Fed funds rate. Uh, why don't you think that you're going to have to do that? Well, my hope is that a lot of the things that are really out of our control, things like supply chain disruptions and the like, are going to start to get to a better place. Uh, we're going to see how uh, the labor market responds. There's, uh, there was a story just last week about retirees coming back into the workplace. Those are things that might relieve some of the tension that we're seeing in labor markets and allow producers to start to increase the supply, their supply of products that then reduces the imbalance between demand and supply because all of this inflation is about an imbalance between uh, the high demand and the low supply that's out there. So if we can start to see movement on the supply side, uh, that means we'll have to push less on demand. And so that inflation, I'm hoping, will come down. Uh, now, how fast? We'll have to see, and that will really determine uh, whether we have to get into restrictive territory and if we do, how far. But I'm totally open to that, but you know, I'll just say, we've been doing surveys throughout the entire pandemic, Everyone has come with predictions that have turned out not to be the case. So I'm going to try to be as humble as I can, be really just true to being in the moment, and try not to anticipate too many steps out in advance because uh, there's just a lot of stuff that's going to happen. You heard the markets uh, at the top of the show. Does it worry you that we're seeing such a rapid sell-off and that uh, market rates are going up so quickly? So those are two different things. So one, I think the, the move in market rates is actually quite interesting because we've not moved very far in terms of our policy rate, but the markets have responded extremely fast. And uh, that, I think, is, is uh, that's really positive from my view in the sense that they're taking on board the policies that we've signaled, and now we've just got to deliver on that, and, and I think we're going to do that. In terms of the volatility in equity markets, you know, uh, the one, one of the things that I found to be very interesting is, as I talk to a number of people, the range of forecasts about what's going to happen over the next six months, the next 12 months, has just really broadened considerably. And that will translate into, I think, higher volatility. And I think some of what we're seeing right now has to do with that. What would it take for you to have to rescue the markets? A lot of people say, uh, let's just say the economy, not the markets, that you get to 2023, you might start cutting rates again. Well, look, there's a lot of momentum in the economy right now. We, we just had a job support at over 400,000 jobs uh, in the month. 
that kind of uh, performance uh, in the before times would have been uh, a reason for, for uh, celebration. So I think we, we can ride out a lot of that momentum uh, even as we are raising rates. And my hope is that we'll get to a place where we don't start to see breakdowns in labor markets or, or other parts of the economy such that we won't have to worry about that. But just to be clear, look, we are, we are paying attention, I am paying attention, and if necessary, uh, we'll do whatever it takes to make sure the economy stays on a solid path. Well, I know if I ask you about the recession probability, your job is to say, no, I don't think that's going to happen because you're at the Federal Reserve. But a lot of your former colleagues, including Bill Dudley uh, and uh, Don Cohn, have said you cannot do this without inducing a recession. Well, you know, I was interviewing Roger Ferguson just last night, and he said the same thing. So, so yes, I am hearing all of that, and I understand that. I, I actually think that the thing we have to just be mindful of is that this is a, this context is nothing like we've ever seen in our in my lifetime in my my policy space. Uh, the pandemic-driven uh, disruptions. Uh, we have a war in Ukraine. There are a lot of things that are intersecting in ways that. I think make it really hard to know with any kind of certainty uh, where the economy is likely to go. So I, I'm keeping my mind open. I'm, I'm an optimist, but a worried optimist. I worry all the time. And, uh, and so I'm just going to pay attention to see where things go. One last very quick question, and that is, it's an election year. Uh, there's a lot going on. Do you feel any political pressure? I'm not feeling any pressure. Look, we, we have a clear job to do, and that's, that's meet our dual mandate. Today, in, the labor market is doing fine. Inflation is where we really have a challenge, and so we just need to do whatever it takes to get that inflation under control. Rafael Bostic, thank you very much for joining us this morning from the Financial Markets Conference at Amelia Island, Florida, where everybody is back together for the first time in a couple of years. John? And I hear it's beautiful too, Mike, which is why you're so happy and not so gloomy, because you don't have to follow this market either. <laughs> Mike McKee, thank you, buddy. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, we will migrate to Washington. Wally Adeyemma joins us, U.S. Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, and far more someone who knows the minutia of sanctions. Wally, I want to cut to the chase, not the broader, bigger uh, picture, but the details of the Office of Foreign Assets Control. This goes back to Albert Gallatin, the War of 1812, and we drag it forward to some 200 employees in the Office of Foreign Assets Control. What, are, what is that office doing in Treasury to defeat Mr. Putin? Well, thank you for asking about the career civil servants who work in the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And today what they're doing is they're working to target 
the Russian military-industrialized complex. They've taken a number of steps already to go after the Russian financial system, and we've seen their economy is contract, contracting by more than 10% due to that. And now we're focused on making sure that any money that remains in Russia can't be used to further build out their military-industrialized complex and be able to fight the war in Ukraine. Today, because of the actions the Office of the Foreign Asset Control has taken, the two top tank makers in Russia aren't functioning because they can't ac get access to the goods and the services they need to do the work that they're doing. And yesterday, right. we sanctioned some of their top military companies as well. And Wally, what's so important here is, we, you know, the media is, here's a yacht, it's Mr. Putin's yacht or it's somebody else's yacht, and we've got all the silliness about boats flo floating around. In that office, did they call up, say, a manufacturer in Poland and say, wait, you can't do that? Or are they just domiciled in America? So what we've done is that not only have we taken actions by talking directly to the financial system and making sure that they're aware that they can't provide services to the people who help build those yachts or help fuel those yachts, but we've done this action in collaboration and coordination with our allies and partners. So not only can you not domicile your yacht in the United States, but across the G7, across 30 countries have taken these actions. And what we've also said is that if you happen to get your yacht to another country, and in that country you're able to find a company that will provide you with services, if that company provides you with material support, we're also going to sanction them as well. Wally, we're at a time where we're dealing with uh, the idea of sanctions on Russia, but also the idea of incredible inflation and possibly removing certain Trump-era tariffs on China in order to reduce those inflationary pressures. How actively is the Treasury Department discussing some of those types of removals at a time when people are wondering about the U.S.-China relationship in light of what's happening with Russia? So our goal is always to make sure that we're making trade policy in a manner that's consistent with our overarching uh, goals. And what we're doing is we're working closely with the U.S. Trade Representative and the rest of the President's Cabinet to make sure that we have an approach with China that um, puts front and center America's interest. And not just America's interest. When you look at the issues we have with China, they're issues that other countries have as well. So working closely, as the President said, with our allies and partners as we think about our China strategy. Going forward, what do you think is going to be uh, the next step with respect to additional pressure put on Russia, especially given some of the inflation that we're seeing? The reality is that when you think about what Russia is doing in Ukraine, it is a key contributor to some of the price increases that we're seeing, both in energy and in food. Today, Russian ships are blocking the ability of food to get out of Ukraine. Because of Russia's actions, you've seen energy prices rise because of the, the geopolitical uncertainty. So what we're trying to do with our sanctions is to end that invasion as quickly as possible. And where we're going to go next is we're going to continue to put pressure on their financial system. We're going to go after their military industrialized complex so that Russia doesn't have the arms they need to continue the war in Ukraine, but also so they can't project power into the future and continue to destabilize the region and the world. Right. Uh, we've got reports on the Bloomberg terminal, Wally, that Russia's seeing a 12% contraction. Do you have any idea, uh, can you model out what form of contraction you visualize? Can it be negative 18%? Can we get there? So what we know today, based on what the IMF and what others have told us, is that Russia has lost about 50, the last 15 years of economic growth due to the sanctions we've imposed on them to date. And that's not even talking about the inflation that is going through their economy. 
The truth is that Russia now has to make choices, and that's exactly what we want them to do, to have to choose between using their resources to prop up their economy or to fight their war in Ukraine. And we want to continue to make that choice even harder by continuing to level sanctions until the invasion ends. Wally, good to hear from you. As always, come back soon. Wally Ariyama there, the US Deputy Secretary of the Treasury. Right now, what we're going to do here is look at what is in Michael Rosenberg's absolutely classic textbook, Currency Forecasting. If you'd like to buy it, it's $299, a hardcover edition, if you can find a copy out on Amazon, out on eBay. George Cerevelis knows Michael Rosenberg is one of the founding heroes of currency forecasting. And Cerevelis goes all Rosenberg. Uh, George, I'm absolutely thunderstruck by your behavioral analysis right now and how it folds into FX. Explain the behavior you're studying that gets you to a call on euro, that gets you to a call on dollar. So I think, Tom, uh, we just need to start off from the global growth environment. And that's really what's been driving the market over the last few weeks. And you have a perfect storm of weakening global growth in all regions. So in the U.S., you have this huge idiosyncratic tightening of financial conditions. In Europe, we have um, the war. And I think what broke... um, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was the China COVID lockdowns, uh, Shanghai, um, now potentially in Beijing. So you have all of the the three world's biggest economies suffering from these um, shocks at the same time, and the market's bringing down growth expectations. And that's really what's what's driving things at the moment, uh, including the US dollar, because uh, you have the situation of lower global growth, but at the same time, US real rates are rising very significantly And that's what's been supporting the stronger dollar over the last um, few weeks. If we're thinking about what would change that, we need to see an inflection in either of those three dynamics. So either China, Europe um, or the US um, to change the current market environment and narrative. George, have you changed your euro dollar call? At the moment, I'm actually still uh, keeping uh, my optimistic euro forecast because I I think, John, the market is too pessimistic. Um, on Europe looking out uh, through the next three to six months. If you take a look at, um, there's a number of things the market's underestimating. Uh, The first one is fiscal policy. Everyone's talking about this big income shock in Europe, which is bringing incomes down. But if you crunch the numbers, more than half of the income shock is being offset because Europe is easing fiscal. um, And that's not what's going on in the rest of the world. And it will continue to do so through next year. Um, Then you've got the reopening dynamic. Um, Europe never reopened after the Omicron wave. The services sector never reopened. And that's exactly why, if you look at the services PMIs, they're holding up much better um, than expected. And then finally, you've got the labor market. Um, The European labor market is actually stronger than the US. The unemployment rate is at record lows. Um, So we think the ECB goes in July. Uh, I I think the market has become too pessimistic in growth expectations. Um, If you look at equity earnings um, globally over the last few weeks, Europe's actually got the best um, forward uh, earnings guidance out there, much better than the US, much better than EM. Um, So I I think the euro will end up rebounding by the end of the year in the second half. What's the catalyst, George, given that all of what you're saying is already known? So I think it's interesting because if you look at price action, you are starting to see the euro turn across a number of other currencies. So, for example... Uh, It's a risk-off environment, but Euro-Swiss is now up on the year. Um, Euro-Sterling is starting to turn. So you are under the hood, so to speak, starting to see Euro outperformance. I think you'd need a couple of catalysts to get that translated into the dollar. 
Um, firstly, the ECB coming into view, um, actually starting to hike rates. Um, the market has been uh, responding with lags to monetary policy repricings. So if you think about the dollar strength, we've known the Fed is tightening. We've known the Fed's doing QT for quite a while, but it's really now that the dollar's responded. And I think you can see um, some of that lag response in Europe. So the ECB coming into view um, and potentially just some easing in all these sharp downward um, shifts to growth expectations that are supporting the dollar. George, this has been a really tough trade. I'd really appreciate if we could catch up again in the next couple of weeks just to reset ahead of the ECB in about a month's time because this one has been really difficult for a lot of people. George Saravellas there of Deutsche Bank. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Ian Shepherdson parses the American economy like no one. He's chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics and joins us for a recalibration this morning. Ian, we just spoke to Raphael Bostic, who gave us the Fed line from Atlanta of the good news out there. We're in control. We have options. How much in control are our central bankers? Well, maybe a bit more than markets think, actually. Uh, of course, you know, they would always say they're in control because if they say anything else, and all exactly. hell breaks loose. And the last few months have been, yeah, the last few months have been very difficult for them, you know, inflation hitting some really big spikes. Uh, but we probably hit the peak. And my guess is when we get CPI numbers later this week, they're going to look significantly better year over year, maybe month to month as well. And then the next few months, that good news should continue. So I think they're going to be able to tell a story later in the summer of, hey, you know, what we've done is working. Of course, what's actually happening is the very favorable base effects are kicking in. Uh, and that will bring inflation down. Then I think they're hoping that the downshift that we seem to be getting in the wage numbers in the last few months will persist, right. and that will help them through the end of the year with some, some genuine downshift in services inflation. Still some big question marks there, but the last few months' data, I'm guessing, have been better than they expected. How important to the late summer into the end of the year view is escaping the Chinese lockdown? Well, you know, that's, that's a big deal for some small sectors. You know, the, the, the US CPI is primarily a domestic service price index with a few goods in it. Uh, now, quite a lot of those goods are China sensitive. So things like clothing, footwear, furniture, appliances, household electronics. But you add those things together and you're still looking at less than a tenth of the index. So if we're getting some meaningful disinflation in, in some of those other components, that, I think, will offset the supply disruption story. Plus, we've got some extremely favorable base effects in, in, in the vehicle component, which will be pretty much a, a done deal to be a, a big downward shove to the year-over-year -year numbers. So actually, the China thing is not helpful. 
but I don't think it's a game changer as long as it doesn't get completely out of control. Ian, we're teasing out your view here. Let's really highlight it. A lot of people, the consensus view, because Fed Chair Jay Powell basically clarified it, 50 at the next meeting, 50 after that. Have you got any doubt around that second 50? And if you have, can you explain it? Yeah, I mean, the, the first 50 in June, I think, is a done deal, barring some sort of sky falling in moment. But July, you know, by July, we'll have had three CPI reports, all of which will show inflation dropping by about half a point per month. We'll have also seen three more months of housing data. And this is where I have a really big gripe with the media narrative that the U.S. housing market is still booming, because it isn't. Mortgage demand is absolutely cratering. I mean, rates have gone from 3% to five and a quarter. There's no way the market could take that. And every week we get mortgage applications numbers and they're terrible. I mean, applications fell 10% in April alone. No sign of a bottom. They still haven't fully responded to the peak in rates yet. And my guess is that over the next uh, few months of spring and into the summer, we're gonna see people some really startlingly weak numbers on home sales, suggesting that the market is really rolling over. I just wonder in July whether the Fed will have the stomach after three good inflation reports as well to do another 50 and whether the market will want them to do another 50 against that backdrop. So there's a lot to play for over the next few months, but, but I do think the two of those very important things, inflation and housing, are going to be telling the Fed, maybe, you know, you can switch back to the 25s a bit sooner. Are you questioning the journey to 2250 or are you questioning the ultimate destination of getting to 2250 here, Ian? Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, uh, my, my beef with markets is they've got far too aggressive on the speed that the Fed needs to go. Uh, I, I'm not certainly I'm not arguing at all with the idea that rates need to be significantly higher. And I actually think they'll be raising rates again in 23 and 24 uh, because the neutral rate will be rising on the back of stronger productivity. And that's a different story to raising rates because you've got behind and inflation's rampant and everyone's panicking. That's that's this year's story. But next year's story, you know, I could see rates going significantly higher really across the whole curve. Uh, so my, my beef with markets is they've been maybe too aggressive for the short term and, and not thinking enough about what might happen next year as well. A different glide path, but, but nonetheless, you know, a rising rate environment. A normalization, if you like, after such a long period, uh, you know, decades of falling rates, uh, real rates across the whole curve, maybe we're moving back to something recognizably normal. Ian, I'm wrapping my head around the scenario that you're portraying, where basically wages start decelerating, and that is actually one of the key drivers in addition to housing that causes a deceleration in inflation. Is this a good thing? Does this lead to something that is positive for the Fed or something that sounds stagflationary because we still have the base uh, effects of what's going on with supply, supply chain disruptions? Yeah, I mean, from the Fed's perspective, the, the wage numbers that we saw last summer when they were running annualized above 6%, that was not sustainable. That scared the pants off them. You know, Chair Powell said that very clearly. Where we are now in the last few months, it looks as though, tentatively, wage growth could be settling down at something like four or maybe the high threes. Now, that is faster than we saw at any point in the last cycle, but that was a very unusual cycle. Wage growth at that pace would be normal for previous cycles uh, and would be consistent with the inflation target if productivity growth just picks up a little bit. So it's kind of a, a sweet spot if we can engineer it against this backdrop of chaos from China and, and, and all the other stuff that's going on as well. But if I were at the Fed thinking about inflation, you know, one to two years down the line, I would be thinking if wage growth settles at, at three and a half to four percent, I'd be really pretty happy because it's not what I was imagining three months ago. I was thinking of five plus and that's a, a much more scary place to be. So it's, it's, it's a plausible, a plausible end point, but it's not yet certain.
I, I, I apologize to harp on this, but is it the absolute number or is it real wages? This idea, I hear Tom laughing, but this to me, it's sort of a relative uh, kind of equation here in terms of wage gains versus the cost of goods. Because if you're only getting a 3% wage increase, but the cost of goods are surging at 10%, this isn't looking very good for the American public and it doesn't necessarily look good in terms of consumer dynamism. Well, you've got to remember that the U.S. household sector is sitting on $3.5 trillion of cash that it accumulated during COVID, which is about 14% of GDP. Cash. That's not taking account of the rise in home prices or the rise in, in, a, in other asset prices like stocks and everything else. That's a gigantic cushion when you set against you know, having to spend a couple of hundred billion dollars a year more on, on food and energy. So the, overall, the household sector is in pretty great shape. There are some questions of distribution, who has this money, who, who doesn't have it. But overall, the household sector is in really good shape. And of course, remember, if the CPI numbers are going to moderate to, to core prints of 0.2 or 0.3 over the next few months, then real wage growth stops falling more or less immediately. I mean, for example, this week, the CPI is going to be a 0.1 or a 0.2 at the headline level, while wage growth this month is going to be a 0.3 or a 0.4. So we're past the worst of it. It's not great. And year over year, it's down. Real income growth is down. But we're moving into, I think, a better position. And we do have this gigantic cushion of accumulated savings and the transfers that the federal government made under COVID. And that makes this income squeeze from food and energy prices very different to previous experience when that cushion just wasn't there. Ian, take your optimism, and this has been hugely beneficial within the gloom, take your optimism over to export and import dynamics for America. Well, we've seen some insane import numbers over the last few months, right. which you know was a big drag on growth in the first quarter. But but I'm 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 guessing and looking at the data, it seems pretty clear that this is substantially because domestic retailers, domestic wholesalers are rebuilding inventory after really struggling during the the peak good spending frenzy uh, of COVID. So this won't last for much longer. I mean, we've seen record trade deficits in the last few months. That's completely unsustainable. Uh, and my guess is that the trade numbers will be a lot quieter over the next few months. That's on the import side. On the export side. We're going to struggle for the foreseeable future because the dollar has shot to the moon. Europe's teetering on the edge of recession. China's in chaos. Yes, it's not a great environment to be an exporter. But again, remember, the U.S. economy overall is primarily a domestic services economy. That applies to growth just as much as it applies to inflation. I, you know, I'd like to see strong exports, but it's not the end of the world if, if they don't happen. And, and certainly for the next few months, it's going to be difficult. And we did this whole interview without talking about Newcastle United. We did. Wasn't that a beautiful thing, Tom? <laughs> I think he owes us for that. I did. We just did you watch that game, TK, yesterday? <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, that was special for Man City, not so much for Newcastle yes. yeah. United. Special summer maybe coming up in the transfer market. And we'll leave it there. We'll catch up soon. Ian Shepardson there of Pantheon that Macroeconomics. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
Now from the College of the Holy Cross, Cynthia Hooper joins Director of Russian and European uh, Studies with some terrific work out of the Harvard-Princeton Combine on Russia and on over the years. Cynthia, this from the great leader. Today, you're defending what our fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers fought for. The bottom line is there is a conflation here rhetorically of the Nazis and a special military operation. What is next in this resurrection of the Nazis of World War II? Well, watching um, Russia's Victory Day celebrations earlier this morning, as I'm in Germany right now, um, I was just struck by uh, Putin's speech to the troops uh, because of some astonishing things that he said that maybe American audiences wouldn't pick up on immediately, but certainly are very clear to Russian domestic audiences and to Europeans. Um, above all, Putin actually drew an implicit comparison between uh, the Nazi regime under the Third Reich and their ideology of racial superiority and the United States after 1991 with what Putin claimed was its ideology of political and economic exceptionality. And Putin actually said that the United States has been humiliating the rest of the world and even its own European allies who have to lap up this rhetoric of superiority. And, um, and Putin also went on to... Um, uh, assure his domestic audience that Russia in 1945 and again today is acting only in self-defense. Uh, he said that uh, that mm -hmm. actually Russia had approached the United States, uh, wanted to talk about global security, been rejected, and that Russian intelligence right. had discovered that the United States was planning an invasion. So Russia had no choice but to invade. The, the heritage of Holy Cross, besides giving us Dr. Fauci, is to prove put religion within the calculus of our international relations. We've talked very little, Dr. Hooper, about this idea of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, if you will, the Church of Kiev and the Church of Moscow. How does religion fold into the framework that Mr. Putin has in his mind? Well, if you talk to uh, the Ukrainian church, they would stress that there's actually a significant schism between uh, Ukrainian and Russian orthodoxy. But again, Putin in his speech today uh, listed a whole number of cities that he said had courageously resisted the Nazis. And these cities are located in what today are Russia, Ukraine, and Belarusia. And Putin referred to a spiritual unity that binds these places together, which he implied is much stronger than any kinds of contemporary ideas ideas of national sovereignty. In the meantime, we see some sort of spiritual unity, at least when it comes to trade between uh, Russia and China. How does that nexus fit into what you're talking about? Well, um, Putin is emphasizing, actually, that uh, Russia is right now standing for, uh, together with the majority of the world's population, in resisting United States domination. And so he talks a lot about um, uh, China, but also India and Africa not supporting sanctions against Russia. He stresses that that is where uh, the majority of the world's population lives. And he also emphasizes, just as he did in 2014, um, when Russia first uh, occupied the Crimea, that if Europe is going to um, uh, cut Russia off with sanctions. Uh, Russia doesn't um, need to worry about that. Russia can make new alliances with developing nations, 
includes the BRIC countries and particularly look eastward uh, towards China. Do you have a sense of what the popular opinion is at a time when there is a growing sense that people are trying to get news through VPNs and not necessarily through the traditional uh, mainstream of the Kremlin-controlled media in Russia? Yeah, great question. It's very hard to gauge popular support for Putin right now. The current polls do show his popularity rising when most recent number was 81.5 percent. But there's reason to be skeptical about such figures. And also um, Western analytics say that fully one third of Russia's Internet users have downloaded at least one VPN, which allows them to you know, act as if they're logging in from another country and thus evade Russian um, government uh, restrictions on Internet usage. Um, also, according to whatever uh, statistics you look at, somewhere between 300,000 to 1 million Russians have left the country because they don't want to be accused of collaborating with the Putin regime. And these are college-educated professionals. Um, at the same time, I think that many, many Russians who are left in the country, all the ones that I know that remain in the country, which is a decreasing number, they're kind of doing what a lot of Germans did during uh, the days of the Hitler regime before World War II actually um, uh, started. They're Treating into the private sphere. One thing that you didn't see um, on Russian TV during these Victory Day celebrations were a lot of pictures of huge crowds outside Red Square. And uh, all the people I know have actually taken the last two weekends or long weekends in Russia, the May holidays, as a chance to go to their dachas. They're hunkering down. They're trying to plant on small land plots, any kind of vegetables they can, um, uh, trying to anticipate rising food prices, uh, a winter that could be hard if this war goes on and Russia continues to be the target of sanctions. And they're trying to sort of figure out how they and their family can uh, hunker down and survive and try to remove themselves from the regime while perhaps not uh, openly resisting it. Cynthia, valuable insight and perspective this morning. Thank you. Cynthia Hooper there of the College of the Holy Cross. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.